This is Muslim Footprints, an opportunity to deep dive into Muslim civilizations through the ages, accompanied by some of the best experts and academics in their field. My name is Aisha Dyer. Stephen Burge is a senior research associate at the Institute of Ismaili Studies, specializing in Quranic interpretation. He's also an ordained priest of the Church of England. I became really fascinated by the Arab world and Islam when my uh, my dad worked in, in Sudan, and then he also worked in Saudi Arabia and Riyadh, and I was just fascinated by it, by the world and by the scripts and just by the different world that I encountered at quite a young age. And uh, since then, I always wanted to go to university and study Arabic, so I did. And then I kind of just carried on. Uh, but I was really interested in the way that Judaism, Christianity and Islam interacted, particularly at the level of popular religion, so sort of Hadith material, uh, stories about the prophets and so on. I find that really fascinating. The free side of things just came about, you know, sort of, uh, as it does to sort of some people. But I don't see the two ever being in conflict. Stephen joined me from London to talk about his book on Prophet Muhammad, Peace Be Upon Him and His Family. Prophets serve as intermediaries between the human and divine worlds. For Muslims, the Prophet Muhammad represents the last of the monotheistic prophets, including Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. In his own lifetime, Prophet Muhammad overcame opposition and brought reforms, establishing a thriving community of believers which would become a major world civilization. Stephen's book reveals the challenges and triumphs of prophecy and examines how prophets have inspired people's relationship with the divine and one another. The main thing that characterizes a prophet is change. They challenge the status quo. What was 7th century Arabia like that needed changing? That's a really that's a good question to start off with. It's quite a tricky one because we don't know a huge detail about what 7th century Arabia was like, and a lot of it comes from later sources. But from reading the Quran and from some other bits and pieces of historical information, we get this idea that there was a real focus on greed, on merchant world, where those in power were seeking to enrich themselves at the detriment to others, which is a really strong theme running through early parts of the Quran. The Quran is really addressing those inequalities in society and trying to call people out for behaving in, in ways that it doesn't deem to be appropriate or fair or just. We don't often have much detail about prophets themselves, as they're not the story, their message is. What do we know about Prophet Muhammad's life before the revelation? It's very true. We don't know a huge amount about the prophet's life. Uh, but there are sources that we can use, and that's the Quran is actually the, the what, one of the key ones that we can use. Now, even though Muhammad is only mentioned 
uh, once by name in the Quranic text itself. We do have some texts written uh, a century or so later, particularly by a figure called Ibn Ishaq, uh, his uh, Life of the Prophet, the Sirat Rasulullah, uh, which brought together the cultural memory that uh, the Prophet's companions had about his life and about the events that happened. It seems and he had quite a tragic childhood with his father dying uh, before he was even born uh, and other family members dying as well. Uh, but when he uh, gets older, there are lots of traditions about his honesty and his integrity, and he starts to become a trustworthy person within within uh, that community. And, and it's then that he gets uh, hired by Khadija to help with her own uh, trading so we do seem to have a picture of what the prophet's life was like, but it does require sort of piecing things together more than there being a sort of direct history. In 610, so around the age of 40, the prophet Muhammad gets the first revelation inside the cave of Hira. The angel Gabriel appears and tells him to read. He doesn't know what to make of this encounter and is reassured by his wife Khadija's cousin, who is a Christian priest. So, did the Christians know to expect him? The religious background of Waraka Ibn Nawfal, the figure you're talking about, it's a bit unclear quite what he is. He's obviously versed in the Christian scriptures. Now, particularly in later Islam, there are readings of the scriptures uh, the Christian scriptures, which scholars have said predicted the coming of Muhammad. Now, obviously, Christians would disagree with that. Christians would say that Jesus is the, is the final figure for them. What I think is more important is that idea of there being a continuity, a shared heritage, and a sort of shared values. If we go back to the actual revelation itself, what was that like? It's sometimes very easy to forget how dramatic... An event that was. I think when we're talking about religious figures, uh, whoever they may be, whether it's Moses or Jesus or Muhammad, we can kind of sanitize the drama because they were actually very dramatic, significant events. In the accounts of the first revelation, it's a very physical event. There are lots of descriptions of Gabriel physically touching Muhammad. And we get this idea of, of, of Gabriel just suddenly bursting into the cave unexpectedly. And there is a real sense of drama, a real sense uh, of the divine world breaking into the into the real human world that is quite shocking. And in the accounts of that uh, event, Muhammad is described in a sort of almost a trance or in a daze. He doesn't quite know what's going on. Uh, he's sweating profusely. He goes back to Khadija and he asks, you know, wrap me up because he was in some sort of fever. Uh, and it's interesting that it's Khadija who is the one who comforts him and guides him and knows what to do. And I think there's something quite nice about that, about prophecy, obviously being about the individual, but that individual has around them a series of important figures that help them work out what's going on, because these are really significant events that would be hard for anybody to cope with. So I think that idea of community and individual is quite an important trend uh, in, all, in, a, in a whole range of faiths, but particularly in Islam, that you, know, you do need people around you in order to understand our place in the world, but also what it is that, that, that we need to be doing. 
Three years after the revelation, in 613, those Arabs that have converted to Islam are being heavily persecuted by the Meccans. Some flee to Abyssinia, a Christian kingdom. Meanwhile, the Prophet is looking for a place outside Mecca where Muslims can be safe and where he can establish a community. And it's the Arab and Jewish communities of Medina, known as Yathrib at the time, who welcome him. So here again, we're seeing the support of the faiths that came before. Two questions. First, for context, was Abyssinia one of a number of places that they escaped to? And second, how should we understand the role of the other Abrahamic faiths in the birth of Islam? The only one we have real documented sort of in, in, in the historical accounts is to Abyssinia, uh, to Ethiopia. In the accounts, not only do those that were persecuted by, by the people in Mecca for their, their following Muhammad and his teaching, uh, so they flee to Abyssinia, but then they're also pursued by the Meccans as well. Uh, but it's the Christian king, the Nagus, who offers them protection. Uh, and I think that says something quite powerful about um, what Meccan society was like and what its values were and what kind of a world the Quran and Muhammad were, were trying to sort of reach and attain. Is something that I try and tease out in the book is that early Islam is kind of rooted in two separate kind of discourses. One is in the idea that the Quran and the message is something that's very old and very ancient and rooted in Jewish and Christian scriptures. But at the same time, it's something that is, is quite new and different to what's been before. But we also get this idea of that relationship between the Jewish and Christian sort of social and religious world and then the Arabian world as well. This idea of an ancient monotheist religious community that sees value in the preaching of Muhammad. It's a bit difficult to tell what precisely these Jewish groups were and what precisely these Christian communities were. There's also this very sort of post-enlightenment modern way of uh, wanting to categorize people all the time as Jews, as Christians, as Muslims. And I think in Arabia in the 7th century, things were a lot more vague, a lot more fluid. People would, would, would have just talked about God and their understanding of what God was like. And for Jews, Christians and Muslims, they would have told stories about Abraham and Moses and and Daniel and Ezekiel and whoever it may have been, not as this is a Jewish story about Moses or a Jewish story about Abraham, but just simply as a story about Abraham. Those divisions weren't necessarily there, particularly on the level of just people talking to each other on the streets and in the markets and all that kind of thing. In my work more generally, I'm, I'm interested in breaking down those barriers, particularly in the late ancient world, because I do think things were a lot more fluid and, and ideas passed from one community to another. Prophet Muhammad had been preceded by other prophets, but his message was different. 
What was new about Islam? Yeah, as I was saying earlier, there's that tension between the old and the new. And, and a lot of the message is rooted in the old Jewish Christian prophetic tradition. What I think is, is new is blending that Jewish and Christian tradition with a very Arabian context. Muhammad is largely believed to be the first prophet to preach in Arabic to an Arab society. A lot of the rituals are different to what's been before. But we also see in theological uh, understanding of God, a faith that's very focused on the oneness of God, on, on Tawheed, which becomes a central theme of the Quran all throughout its whole period of revelation. The idea of social justice and fairness is one that's brought out particularly uh, strongly. Now, there are uh, passages in both the Hebrew Bible and in the Christian Bible that denounce fraud and things like that. But it's particularly strong in the Quran about making sure that people are honest and have integrity in business and financial transactions. That's something that's really quite new. I think that highlights the interrelation between ideas that are about God and the divine and the everyday. And I think the fact that the Quran addresses so much about daily life, you know, about how to, to deal with business, how to write wills, how to sell things, how to get married and all these kinds of things, it roots the faith in daily life. What is it that makes Prophet Muhammad the last prophet? So quite often when a prophet is raised up by God, it's to, to address a very specific issue within a very specific community. So we see a prophet raised to go and preach to a specific tribe, usually their own. And what we see in the life of Muhammad, we see a similar idea of a prophet being raised from a member of the community to preach out against certain ills in society. And in the context of Mecca, that's closely linked to two main ideas, which is the worship of idols, but also it's a poor treatment of those on the margins, particularly widows and orphans who aren't protected uh, so much by the, the tribal system. Now, one of the terms for prophets in, in the Quran is the idea of the nadir, and a nadir mean, means somebody who warns, a warner. So a prophet is there to warn people about their actions, uh, but they're also a, a bashir, uh, somebody who announces good news, and uh, that is of the reward of paradise. And Sorry, this is a very long way to get to the end of your question. So what we see in the Quran is the Quran itself becomes the vehicle of warning and the vehicle that announces the good news. And it becomes a universal text. So prophets are not needed anymore because there is the Quran which fulfills that function. Muhammad is the last prophet and the greatest prophet because he is the one who receives a revealed message which is for all of humanity and not just for a specific community. It's a universal message for all of people throughout time. The rest of the episode continues in just a moment after this message. On behalf of the team at The Ismaili, we'd like to thank you for tuning in to Muslim Footprints. We very much hope you're enjoying this show 
and would be grateful if you could leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. We appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more valuable content in the future. Now, back to the show. In 622, the Prophet Muhammad completes the migration from Mecca to Medina. In Medina, he creates a constitution explaining how all the groups should interact with each other. The Muslims who had migrated, the new converts in Medina, the existing Jewish tribes, etc. In your book, you write, the new community was born. Do you mean community as in everyone who was governed by the constitution? In Mecca, there was a group of people who followed Muhammad and worshipped God and were Muslims, but because of their place in society, it, it, it wasn't a community as such. They weren't free to behave and live and worship as they wished. Uh, it just was impossible. But after the Hijra and, and, and the move to Medina, we see the creation of a Muslim, I don't want to use the word state, but I will do, uh, but we see the creation of a Muslim community and state, which is political, governable, societal, civil, criminal, ritual law become part and parcel of of, of that community, which is distinct and separate from the old Arabian ways. In later history, the Caliph Omar, when he set, creates the Muslim calendar, it's not from the first revelation that the calendar begins, but it begins at the emigration to Medina, because that's the moment that we see uh, the birth of the community really coming into existence. At the same time, I think your, your question is really important because obviously it was a multi-faith community. So the constitution of Medina itself refers to the Jewish communities that were living in Medina and it welcomes them into that community and that society. So a new type of community was born you know, at that point, both in, in the sense of a new, the establishment of a new Muslim community, but also a community that did incorporate other religious traditions within itself. People talk about the Mecca and Medina periods as two distinct phases in terms of the nature of God's message. What explains these two types of message? The Meccan surahs are typically much shorter, much punchier. There's almost a sense of a preacher on a street preaching to everybody, including those that don't want to listen to him and don't want to follow him, and his having a conversation in order to try and bring people to his way of thinking. It's very rhythmical, it's very powerful, very dramatic sort of imagery, and it addresses a lot of the ills of society, the treatment of widows, the treatment of orphans, uh, dodgy business practices, and so on. When the community moves to to Medina and sets up the community in, in Medina, the, the passages are very different. 
in tone. We start to see much longer suras, has lots of legislation, lots of description. We start to see engagement with with Jewish and and possibly Christian communities as well in Medina. Uh, It's talking about people bringing people in rather than confronting people with the things that they're doing wrong. We don't see the end to the theme of social justice in Medina, but we do start to see a legislative programme emerging in Medina, which is really quite different in tone to what's happened in Mecca. Once he emigrated to Medina, the Prophet Muhammad never moved back to Mecca. He was even buried in Medina, the city the Muslim community came into being. Why did he not move back? Yes, so we see... uh, he goes back and he conquers Mecca towards the end of his life, but he, he doesn't move back. The community is in Medina. The idols are taken out of the Kaaba and the people of Mecca have, have converted to Islam. So that, that there's no real need to be present there. But I think or the real sort of plan is to create this society. And that society was created and set up and established in Medina, and I think that's where, kind of where the Prophet's heart is, is that his his attachment is to the, the formulation of the community. And I think that's why he chooses to stay there. The Prophet did, however, go on pilgrimages to Mecca. Can we talk a bit about the history of the pilgrimage, the Hajj, and the long history of worship that's associated with the Kaaba? Yeah, so uh, another good question and a, quite a complicated one and one that's relatively understudied in the academic world as well. So going on a journey somewhere in order to pay respect to a deity is, is an important part of religious experience in the late ancient world. So going on pilgrimage is something that's relatively common uh, by Jews, Christians, Muslims and pagans or Austrians, whatever it may be. So the next question is, you know, where did people go? Uh, so in the Jewish tradition, uh, people would, would go on pilgrimage to the temple. And uh, in in Arabian society, people would go on pilgrimage to their particular shrines and so on. But the Kaaba seems to have been a very, very important shrine in the local area. And... Uh, there are traditions that associate the Kaaba uh, with Allah, with, with, with the God. And there are scholars that argue that although Arabians, sort of pre-Islamic Arabs, worshipped different deities, they all believed in this one high God, Allah, and that he was associated with the Kaaba in some way, and they would go on pilgrimage in order to to, to pay respect to, to, to the one high God. So there seems to have been pilgrimage to the Kaaba for a long time before uh, the Prophet Muhammad was around. And what we see in the Quran, but in later texts as well, is the Kaaba being associated with, with other prophets of the past as well. So in the Quran, Abraham is described as as visiting the Kaaba and purifying it and, and, and performing tawaf, so performing circumambulation around around the Kaaba. But the, there are associations of Adam with the Kaaba as well. So when Adam and Eve are expelled from paradise, they've obviously been separated from God. And in order to create a space where 
Adam and Eve can still interact with the divine world, the Kaaba becomes that place. So this is the idea of the Kaaba being a very special and holy place for for generations, if not the whole of time, in Muslim sources. So it, it's rooted in this sort of mythic past and then uh, within the lives of the prophets. Another quite common feature of a late antique religious practice is to see one particular place on earth being linked in some way to the divine world. And it's almost like there is a sort of vertical line that goes up from the Kaaba up into heaven. But there are lots of other religious traditions that have a similar link, that, you know, even pagan traditions where there was one place which linked earth to heaven. And in, in later Hadith, we see lots of descriptions of there actually being a Kaaba in heaven, uh, which is sometimes uh, named the Beit al-Ma'mur, the inhabited house, uh, which is mentioned in the Quran, uh, where we see angels actually <laughs> visiting the Kaaba and circumambulating uh, as well, which is why uh, the Kaaba becomes the, the place to which Muslims pray. So we see in the early community, they prayed towards Jerusalem, but that gets changed to the Kaaba. Uh, and the Kaaba becomes the central focus wherever anybody is in the world. Let's talk about the supernatural, which at the time will have served as proofs of divine presence on earth. There's the example of Prophet Muhammad's father having a glow or a light about him that is passed to Amina when he gets engaged to her, and she then passes it on to the Prophet. How should we understand stories like this when it comes to studying history? In our modern world, we can kind of dismiss the supernatural. We can read accounts from late antiquity or earlier which involve the supernatural and just kind of pass over them as, as being unimportant. Yet, at the time, they were a part and parcel of how people engaged with the world and the world around them. And they can tell us really important things about the nature of who people are, what they're trying to convey and articulate. And particularly with prophecy, people would have had expectations about the types of person a prophet would be, what sorts of things they could do. They would need to be able to prove their credentials in some way. And all these things would actually be rooted in the supernatural. And that's part of how the late ancient and also the medieval world worked. So it's something that as historians, we can't be too dismissive of it because it's actually trying to tell us something. And, you know, sort of with my modern hat on, it, it doesn't really matter whether there was a light that passed from Abdullah to Amina to, to the Prophet Muhammad. What's more important is that tells us something about who the Prophet was and who his family was and how important that was. But also the, the significance of that moment of that marriage between Abdullah and Amina. The tendency has been to avoid the spiritual side when writing history. Why is that approach problematic, splitting the political and the spiritual? When we're talking about the history of religion, we're necessarily talking about 
the divine world. We're talking about a community that believes that it has had communication from the divine world through a prophet or, or whatever vehicle that may be. And if we read a spiritual text with historians' eyes, we're going to ask the wrong questions of it and we're going to end up with the wrong answers. Similarly, if we read a historical text from a very rigid theological perspective, we're going to end up with reading that historical text in a very different and misguided way too. With the, the, the history of Islam, you know, if we want to understand who the Prophet Muhammad is, we need to understand what prophecy is because Muhammad's life is inextricably linked to the world of prophecy, the world of the divine and the world of the supernatural. And there have been historians who have tried to peel back those texts to reveal the historical Muhammad. But that becomes increasingly difficult because we're not dealing with texts that are necessarily interested in Muhammad as a historical figure. We're dealing with Muslim texts that already understand Muhammad as a prophet, as somebody who interacted with the divine world. And that's quite a different thing. Uh, so that we need to understand what it is that we're reading and how we're reading it. And then we can engage with the text more fully and, and understand it more deeply. Another example of the supernatural was, of course, the moment of the first revelation in the cave of Hera. And there's also the story of the mirage, the prophet's ascent into heaven. And back to your point about how we should understand these stories, esoteric interpretations of Islam emphasize the spiritual significance of mirage as symbolizing the journey of the soul and the human potential to rise up above the trappings of material life. So the event at Hera is a very dramatic moment and the idea of the divine world suddenly breaking in to the earthly world and Muhammad having to deal with that. In a way that there's this sort of pairing of the events at Hera with the prophet's ascension into heaven where instead of the supernatural breaking through in the human world, we see the human prophet Muhammad breaking into the divine world and seeing all the sights of heaven and all the angels and the prophets of the past and so on. So we see this kind of first revelation in reverse with, with the prophet being taken into the divine world. And I think those two go hand in hand. You can read one in light of the other. What are some of the main lessons that people can take from the story of Prophet Muhammad's life? Well, one of the um, really interesting sort of genres of literature that emerges 200 years or so after the Prophet's death is, is this body of literature called Muqarim al-Akhlaq, which means sort of noble qualities of character. And these texts would collect hadith material about what the Prophet was like and what qualities he emulated and it creates a sort of model for people to follow and so a lot of these are you know being ethical and honest and truthful and all these kinds of things 
which are important in the you know in the modern world, universally important, whether you're Jewish, Christian, Muslim, or whatever. Uh, but also the Makar and Machlak also talk about things like sort of good table manners, being polite, uh, smiling, and all these kinds of things, which are quite sort of almost like mundane kind of characteristics of how we should live. But I think this literature says actually the way that we engage with others, even on that mundane level of being kind, being polite, smiling, not becoming angry, not being frustrated by by others who annoy us, that actually makes us better people. It makes society a better place. And it's even on these small issues, not just those big ideas about sort of not defrauding others and all this kind of thing. They're actually really important to a religious social life as well. Obviously, the foundation of a religious community is a very important part of, of the Prophet's legacy, but I think that everydayness of the Prophet's life uh, that creates a model for people to follow is a is a very lasting legacy uh, and has a huge impact on how Muslims engage uh, in their in their daily lives. Few conferences can have gathered so many men of outstanding intellect who have devoted so much time and wisdom to the study of Islam and the life of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him. In 1976, Muslim scholars from all around the world gathered in Karachi, Pakistan to discuss Sirat, or the way of life of the Prophet Muhammad. The Aga Khan, the 49th hereditary imam or spiritual leader of the Shia Ismaili Muslims, known to his followers as Maulana Hazar Imam, delivered the presidential address at this conference appealing to prominent Muslims all over the world to help their societies face the challenges of a rapidly evolving modernity. In our search for a solution, I am convinced that we must call upon our own men and women who have achieved positions of eminence anywhere in the world and persuade them to return for us to benefit from their knowledge, their learning and their work. All too often in my journeys, I have met or learned of outstanding Muslim scholars, doctors, scientists, architects, who have remained abroad, or who, when they do come home, have failed to receive the support and encouragement necessary for them to bring to their nation's benefit their Muslim outlook on key areas of modern progress. Any meaningful human endeavor any original thinking, any authentic research will require moral encouragement and material support. This we must provide not only during the individual's initial years of learning, but equally when he leaves the restricted life of his academic center to enter into the wider world of international or national activity. The Holy Prophet's life gives us every fundamental guideline 
that we require to resolve the problem as successfully as our human minds and intellects can visualize. His example of integrity, loyalty, honesty, generosity both of means and of time, his solicitude for the poor, the weak and the sick, his steadfastness in friendship, his humility in success, his magnanimity in victory, his simplicity, his wisdom in conceiving new solutions for problems which could not be solved by traditional methods without affecting the fundamental concepts of Islam. Surely, all these are foundations which, correctly understood and sincerely interpreted, must enable us to conceive what should be a truly modern and dynamic Islamic society in the years ahead. You're a Christian priest specializing in Islam and the Quran. In what ways has this path helped you progress in the way that you think about your own faith? I think just studying texts that are trying to explore what it means to live a good life, what God is and how we can understand God, uh, what it means to be moral, Regardless of whether it's a Jewish text, a Christian text, or a Muslim text, it's something that we can all learn from. And that there are some things in the Muslim worldview which I will disagree with on a theological level, but there's also a whole load of things that I find uh, spiritually and intellectually interesting and rewarding. My academic work and my ministry are sort of both separate but intertwined, uh, which is a bit of hedging in my bets a little bit there, but they flow into and out of each other, really. And it's all part of, I think, a, a wider plan to understand the world and God a bit better. Stephen's book is called The Prophet Muhammad, Islam and the Divine Message. Muslim Footprints is developed and produced by Kalima Communications, in partnership with The Ismaili. Our theme tune is Mullah Mama Jan, performed by Black Heat. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Muslim Footprints.